Research for what? Hello and welcome to Research for What, the podcast that discusses scientific research, its purpose and impact. I'm your host, Ron Bouvray. Each week, I will interview recognized thought leaders who share the same passion for science and research and invest the energy, time or money. We will talk about the challenges and opportunities for research. I'm also very keen to find out how experts define impact and what methods they use to measure it. Every week, I will ask the question, research for what? In this episode, I'm very pleased to speak with Justin Gooding. Justin wears a few hats. He's an ARC Laureate Fellow in the School of Chemistry at the University of New South Wales in Sydney. He's also the, co-founding, the founding co-director of the Australian Centre for Nanomedicine and the founding co-director of the New South Wales Smart Sensing Network. Justin is also the Editor-in-Chief of SES Census. Justin, thank you very much for taking the time to chat with me today. Oh, it's a pleasure, Ron. So in the next 30 minutes or so, I'd like to ask you a few questions about publishing and why papers are often a good indicator for researchers to show their performance or not. Um, can I start by asking you how and why you became Editor-in-Chief of SES Census? Yeah, that's a really good question. The reason I became Editor-in-Chief, well, it's a, it's a multi-layered answer, of course. One of them is it's scientists like myself are a little bit vain, and to be asked to do something like that uh-huh. is, a, is, a, is a great honour. But really the main driver behind why I wanted to do it was because I felt that, that sensing was a really important field, but I didn't feel there was a really strong sensing journal. So I think there, were very, mm-hmm. there are very good journals in the field, but I, I felt that there, needed, there wasn't a really high-level journal that was going to advance the field. And so I thought that we could really come up with a, a, a sensing journal that did that. And more specifically, in the chemical space, which is where I work, and ACS stands for American Chemical Society. So I, wanted, I thought there was an opportunity to create a journal that was publishing the really best uh, work in chemical sensing, which I then felt would advance the field. So it's a very unique opportunity being an editor. You can actually influence a field. Right. So can you tell me why did you think there was a need to publish in that field? Or or more general question is, why do we need to publish? Or what did you think there was a need to publish in that field? So firstly, why do we need to publish? Well, publishing is in fact the only mechanism by which we disseminate Mm -hmm the research that we do. And of course, publishing is peer-reviewed as well. And so something's happened over the last 50 years. It's really the only way you can show what you did. Uh, Though that's, I think, evolving because as Mm -hmm. more and more translational work starts to become translated, Mm -hmm. you can also show what you did by the product that exists. Mm -hmm. But that's not open to all areas of science anyway. And science should be from the very fundamental to the applied. Mm -hmm. And so publishing is the key way you disseminate that information so why do you disseminate it in a given field why should there be a sensor mm-hmm. a journal in sensing as there are several journals in sensing the answer is because if there's so much published how do i find something in the area that i'm interested in and equally well as a scientist how do i reach my audience the people that are interested in what i do so a, a journal in a given field is that mm-hmm. venue mm-hmm. You also said something interesting. You said you wanted a, a, a venue or a tool, a vehicle to publish great science. <laughs> so what do you define as great science or good science? 
Yeah, that's also a very difficult question. But what I meant by that was I wanted to publish the science that could uh, really change the field, change the way people think. And so in, a, in an apparently applied field like sensing, which actually is quite yeah. fundamental, the way to quite a, uh, applied, it might be the, 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 the papers that solve one of the long-standing problems, or it might be a, a paper that produced, reports the new way of measuring something detecting something and so it's the why you want to um publish why you want to publish papers in that area is it it then motivates people to to also try and push for the very edge of the field and advance the field so who makes a decision that a paper is going to advance the field that's a very good question too so obviously it's made by several people in the process yes you'd like to think the authors are making that decision yes. Then, of course, the editor, make, the editor-in-chief will make a decision as to whether it's worth sending out for peer review or not. The editor will make that decision with one of the associate editors, at least in our journal. Mm-hmm. In our journal, two pairs of eyes see every paper. And then, of course, then the referees are also mm-hmm. making a value judgment on it. But in the end, it's the editor that handles the paper. So that's not even the editor-in-chief necessarily. It may be the editor that's actually sending it out to referee. That is the person that makes the decision with the aid of the information they've got from the other people. Is it an easy decision to make? If you received 100 papers, yes. how many buckets would you make and you know, how easily could you put the, the papers in each bucket? Yes, so, that's, so there's, there's a bucket that's this is clearly not of the level that we're looking for, okay. maybe not conceptually novel enough. Yeah. We set up criteria which we make very clear, which is not that common, to the authors as to what we need in a, a paper. If they don't satisfy those criteria, it's quite easy to put it in the bucket. Then we have the bucket, the second bucket, which is the, this is related to stuff we've mm-hmm. seen before, but is an advance, and that's in the middle bucket. And then, of course, the top bucket is, we've never seen anything like that before. Right. And that, and you know, and yet, and it's solving a really important need or issue or answering a really important question. And do you get enough of those top bucket papers? Or is it an issue for you to attract them? So in chemistry, the American Chemical Society is one of the yes. premier publishing right. places. And so there's a lot of brand prestige with being an, an ACS journal. I think that makes our job easier. I think there's one or two other journals we compete with for that best mm-hmm. stuff in, the, in just specific sensing journals. And then there's the journals that are more generalist journals. So if you're publishing something that's a really exciting idea, you might want all all people to know it or all chemists to know it, or even all scientists mm. to know it. Um, but I think we've been very lucky that it hasn't been as hard for us to, to mm-hmm. attract that work as I thought it would be. And then as impact factors come in and our impact factor is quite high, mm-hmm. that then makes our job easier again. So it hasn't been as hard as I thought it would be. Um, and I'm absolutely delighted actually with the quality of work that we have received mm-hmm. and the quality of work we've published. But I think it's There's a luck element to that. Do you follow up on which papers have had an impact or have changed you know, the field? So we know what papers have had an impact. Well, we know what papers have been cited right. a lot, right. which may or may not be an impact. Yes. But generally, it means it's right. having an impact on thought. So we know that way. We also have recently published a virtual issue. So it's a collection of papers from the journal put together as papers that have been involved, that have been part of a commercial device. So not new papers? 
They're not new papers. Yeah. They're, a, they're a collection of yeah. already published papers. What we were trying to show was that we feel that the, the field of sensing clearly has a motivation towards commercial devices. And so if we're hitting, if we're publishing the, the type of work that commercial entities are either commercialising or their or commercial companies are authors on the paper, people from companies are authors on the paper, it suggests that the criteria we have are, are criteria that's relevant to commercial commercialisation of census. And that was one of the things we were trying to do is make sure we publish work that no. could go the journey, doesn't have to go the journey, but, but is relevant to that journey. Do you think that's specific to the field of sensing? No, it's not specific to the field of sensing. There's many fields that the that that are revolved around producing a, a something. Right. I think that we don't have enough journals that you know, we used to have you know, it used to be that industry and academia yes. read journals. Yes. And it's become progressively more segmented towards just academia. Yes. And so what we were trying to do is move a bit back and be more relevant to industry as well as academia because we think if, if, the, if you want to do really important science and sensing, then it should be relevant to what industry wants. Right. And yes. so we were trying to make it, move it back there or move that journal, position our journal so it had some relevance to industry so that, that people who were then aspiring to publish in our journal would have a better chance of also having their work commercialised and having that really big impact, the impact on society rather than impact on their citations. Well, it's okay. So that's, that's interesting. So the motivation to publish for an author in academia is to show their performance, to show what they've done. Correct, yes. In industry, there might be, uh, people might, authors might be more inclined to keep their work secret. Why, so why do they, why do they publish? It varies, right? It might be that they're publishing, you know, they might want to keep it secret. But at the same point, you know, we're living through this COVID-19 pandemic at the moment and we're asking questions about the technologies being developed, about how reliable and robust they are. Are they really fit for purpose? Are they doing the job that we need them to? And one way to, to what the most trusted way of doing that right. is to publish it and have it peer-reviewed. That's why industry often wants to publish their work. The peer review process, is that done by academics or industry as well? Can be both. Again, you find people that have published and worked in the field. So the more industry people right. publishing, the more likely you are to have industry people refereeing. I think that's a really good perspective. I think that in all things, diversity of thought is really important in, in yes. advancing science. And so having someone from an industry background refereeing a paper that from an academic institution, you can see that that can help improve the work because the job of the referee is not to make the decision. The job of the referee is to give the editor some information and all about the quality of the paper, but also for the referee to give the editor and the author information how they think the paper mm. could be made better. So it's the editor that makes a decision whether it's accepted or rejected. The referees are commenting on how to make the paper the best paper it can be. That's their job. Is that an ideal world or does it exist? I mean, the peer review process is quite controversial. And the reviewer's work is often criticised negatively by authors who get their papers rejected, obviously. 
which happens more often than getting your paper accepted. How do you control the peer review process? Yeah, so you're also suggesting this to me from a biologist's perspective, right. more than a chemist's right. or physical scientist's perspective. So that is what I described as you're absolutely right. right, is how it should work in reality. I think that, and I would say that we have that working in chemistry and physics quite often, but we also have people that are trying to mm -hmm. reject the paper. Mm -hmm. We have people that may have had bad experiences themselves and are therefore relaying crappy, and they've had really crappy referees reports, you know, poorly done referees reports, as distinct from negative referees right. reports, yeah, yeah, yeah. and they may be mimicking that. In biology, and it's creeping into chemistry as well, we have this other problem that the referees are now just asking for more work. Mm. And it's mm. actually economically taking people out of the publishing game yes. by causing it to cost more money. In in their editors' meetings that we have with the all the editors-in-chief of all the ACS journals, we've talked about this and how it shouldn't happen. We think it's, you know, if you look over the how long it took a, in the US, a PhD student mm -hmm. in biological sciences, how fast through their PhD before they published their first paper, you see it shifted later and later and later. We would like to avoid that. And I, th I would like biology to swing back a little bit, right? Obviously, if there's an important control that will change the understanding of the, the science, mm -hmm. and then it needs to be done. But just so in my field, you know, we often have to have characterizing of surfaces and someone might say, well, you've got this technique, but not that technique. Mm -hmm. Well, will it change the conclusions of the paper? Maybe not. Mm -hmm. And if it's not, if the, if the editor's decision is it's not going to change the conclusions of the paper, then you're just wasting resources mm -hmm. and we should, mm -hmm. that control shouldn't be necessary. So I still think mm -hmm. that the referees should be targeting what is needed to make this the most sound Mm -hmm. high-quality piece of science, that's what they should be requesting, in my view. Is it always only about the science? Or is it sometimes... I mean, you talked about you know PhD students. There's huge pressure on PhD students to have at least a paper during their PhD. You know, does anyone try to bring the human factor into your decision and do you, you know, consider that? Yeah, that's also... We always... Well, we always would like to bring the human factor into the into the decision in terms of, or into the process in terms of being empathetic to the people. We're scientists ourselves. Mm. We have our own papers refereed. I would like our responses to our authors to be understanding and empathetic. Mm. But a decision as to whether a piece of science is published or not is not not relevant. You know, the whether somebody's had a bad week is not relevant to that. Right. Saying that, we have recently in all the American Chemical Society journals with COVID-19 made a clear mm -hmm. statement mm -hmm. and also towards all the editors that if there is a, if there is a, if the referees are suggesting experiments that don't fundamentally change the paper with the fact that so many labs are closed, mm -hmm. we would right. not require that. I actually think that's a general principle that we should abide by. If it's not going right. to fundamentally change the paper... Let's not require extra experiments, unless, of course, it's going to improve the paper and make it more robust. But if if a, a suggestion is going to change the outcome and the understanding of the paper, obviously it has to be done. And then we then in this COVID nineteen time, mm -hmm. we wait. We the author knows we will wait for them. Do you think a great science, the definition of great science, is always clear to the authors? So if you if you have to have these three buckets, you know, obviously it's not clear. So why is it not clear to to the authors? 
Because people like to think that science is not uh, is a dispassionate <laughs> field, but it's a very passionate field. You know, you hear people say, "Oh, your you, your your paper wasn't accepted." You know, the referees trashed it. It's not personal. Well, that's not true. It is personal. We, every scientist <laughs> I know puts their passion and a lot of emotion into their work. Yes. And of course, therefore, they're not. None of us see our work objectively, mm. or not as objectively as say the referee did yes and sometimes the referee may have just seen something that we didn't see because we're so immersed in it because we're also immersed in it when looking at it from the outside so i think we often don't see where our work sits because of because of that emotion that fact had the fact that we're so invested and proud of what we've done mm. some people are better at it than others that's that's certainly true mm-hmm. but yeah i think that it's always important to, to remember that nearly every scientist I know is absolutely emotionally invested in what they do. During the peer review process, so the name of the editor or editors mm-hmm. is known to the authors. Correct. But the name of the referees is often hidden. Correct. Blind reviewing is the most common. One-way blind reviewing is the most so, common. Uh, so I know a lot of people are talking about you know sharing this information with the authors. What, what do you think? I think it doesn't allow the reviewer to be to really say what they think. I think many people will not mm-hmm. say what they think, and I also think there's a cultural aspect here that we don't think about. To be direct about what you think about something is not the same in every culture. Mm-hmm. Not every culture is willing to do that. It's actually one of the things that I worry about in publishing. We're enforcing a Western doctrine mm-hmm. culture on all scientific publishing, and that's not necessarily... Mm-hmm. in the interest of science. And mm-hmm. a classic example I I know of is in some cultures where mimicry is the absolute mark of respect, an author might write, this work is important because everybody else has done it mm-hmm. or, or everyone else is doing it. And that's really a, a reference to we're following the, in the step, standing on the shoulders of giants, mm-hmm. if mm-hmm. to use the Western vernacular. But, of course, to a Western referee or editor that means oh it's all been done before Mm. and it's just a cultural Mm. misunderstanding i feel that the i'm you know i've grown up in the blind refereeing yes thing i feel that and i have refereed for papers where my name has been revealed afterwards yes that has also influenced the way i've just chosen to referee that paper and so i think i want the most objective view of the referee Remember, the referee's mm. report is for the editor to help the editor mm. decide whether a paper can be a paper that's of the standard to mm. be published in that journal. The referee's report is in many ways information for the editor that the editor shares with the authors. And in fact, the editor, if they're a good editor, will often take out inflammatory things mm. that are, are not correct. Mm. So I'm in favour of that approach. I don't completely understand why people think uh, why they would like the the referees' names to be chosen. I think that a lot of authors think that the referees make the decision, but they don't. Uh, okay. Yeah. That's a really important distinction. The, the referee never makes a decision. How about hiding the names of the authors or their affiliations? Yeah, the double-blind refereeing. There's not a lot of evidence to say that has oh. any impact whatsoever. Okay. Though it's an interesting idea. I think it's an... And you think about it from... 
in the terms of, you know, they essentially do this often in music auditions. The person comes right. in, yes. they play behind a curtain. Yeah. And so that the, 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 the judging panel who's deciding whether that person gets in, of course, just hears the sound. In a research paper, we always know who wrote it. Right. Or pretty much always. Yeah. And so there is, I can't remember, I'm pretty sure I've read that with the, some of the nature journals that have the double blind refereeing, there's a clear cultural aspect of who chooses double blind versus single blind. Right. And so people that think they're being discriminated against, right. and they may be, yes. of course, are choosing right. the double blind more than, and those that who, who think they have the reputation to get into their nature family journal, they're clearly not yeah. choosing double blind. There is some strong evidence or some, I understand there's some reasonably good evidence to show that that where double blind could work, or it's more gender neutral, right? Gender, there is some bias against, there is evidence to show bias against female authors over male authors. Mm. But the fact of the matter mm. is it's very hard mm. to write a paper mm. without revealing who, who mm. the authors are, mm. if you know the field. And, and the fields can be tight, especially when you right. go to the high-end journals. Yes. Right. Let's go back to the citations. Mm -hmm. So citations, one indicator of a good paper, or, or paper that provoked some thoughts, does it matter to the journal? Yes, very much so. So why does it matter so much? Because it, because it all, it's all to do with this vanity of scientists and also their now university administrators. So it matters to the journal that a paper is highly cited because those citations count to the journal's impact factor. Right. And the journal's impact factor counts to a ranking of journals, yes. which then counts to whether the good you know, authors will submit papers to you or not. So you asked me earlier right. on whether yeah. we got happy with the high quality of papers. And I mentioned the impact factor. Yes. The higher the impact factor, the more likely you are to get those high quality right. papers. So it becomes this cycle. And it's something that's really emerged over the last 50 years or so. You know, the impact factor was only invented in the 60s. Prior to that, people only published wherever was the right venue for them. And slowly but surely, it's now morphed to the point where people try and publish... Not everybody, but a lot of people try and publish on what the highest impact factor is because now the university administrators know it and they're, they're judging you not on the quality of your science again, but the journals in which it's published. So I feel you could wear two hats here. You could wear one that supports impact factors and you could wear a hat or you could argue against impact factors as well. Am I, am I correct or...? Yes, yes, I think that's a fair statement. Um, so in the sensing field... Uh, chemical sensing field, our journal is not the highest impact factor. Right. But we definitely think it's the best, of course, we would <laughs> say that. And I think there's a lot of high-quality authors that would hopefully say that as well. Yeah. So they're judging on the quality of the other work that they're seeing and, yes. and that work that they respect. Impact, But impact factor is a necessary evil. If our impact factor is very low, we're not going to get those papers. Our impact factor is reasonably high, so we get really good papers. We don't necessarily get all the good papers because there's a journal that's higher and some people will prefer to go for the higher mm -hmm. number or they may all, they also may think it's a better suited journal. Mm -hmm. The two journals do have slightly different audiences. Mm -hmm. I would like us more to choose audience more than impact factor because audience would also mean you're likely to also mm. get more people who are interested in that work reading your work which also could also mm. mean more citations and that could then cycle back to help your career as mm. well mm. Um, but it seems a lot of people are chasing 
citations or impact factors, right? So you you named administrators, journals, authors. Is that is that too big? I mean, it, it, is that really such a valuable indicator? No, impact factor is actually a poor indicator, right? Because it's it implies that it's talking about the impact of the paper, right? But it's actually more an immediacy index. Mm. It's the number of citations mm. to your paper that w- that was published only one or two years previously. So it says nothing about whether it's a legacy paper. It says nothing about whether it's a thought-changing paper. It says a lot... Of, or it could be mm. saying those things, mm. but it could be mm. saying an awful lot of people mm-hmm. work in that area. Mm. Um, wow. And so you... Uh, Impact factor. So all the materials journals at the moment are very high because we're in the age of materials, mm-hmm. materials, chemistry, advanced materials. So And there's a lot of people working in that space. So the, all those journals have very high impact factors. So an impact factor of five in for one in material space is not the same as in synthetic organic chemistry. You know, an impact factor of five in synthetic organic chemistry might be the top, right. top journal. Yeah, yeah. But in materials, yeah. it's a middle to lower right. journal. Right. So the factor doesn't really reflect the impact. It reflects the impact factor reflects the number of citations articles in that journal of God divided by how many they published. Right, that's what it, that's yeah, all yeah, it yeah. reflects over a short time period. Because uh, that's easy to measure. Because it's easy to measure, and so then you say well, we're all chasing it. Yeah. Well, even when I started doing science, we didn't chase it. Right. You know, we just thought about the audience. You know, that's only. 25 years ago or so. You know? yeah. And what I've seen as a, as a supervisor of PhD students is the students now care. You know, once they cared to pu- they published a paper, now they, they're chasing impact factor because they know, they know they're being judged on that. They're not being mm. judged on the mm. quality of their work. They don't feel mm. that. They're not being judged on that you hit the right audience. They don't even feel mm. like it's too early in their career to really be judged on citations. Mm. So they're being judged on, on the impact factor of the journal. I mean, certain institutions will put a, a limit, right, or will actually reward authors for publishing in certain journals, not because the work is good, but because of the impact factor. So Correct. You, in certain films or certain institutions will say, if you publish above, in, in a journal with an impact factor above 10, we're really, we will reward you. Correct. And sometimes the, raw, the rewards are exceptionally big rewards. Right. I know of some places you get a published in a certain type of journal, you suddenly go from associate professor to professor. Right. You know, like, I mean, astonishing rewards. Yeah, yeah, right. So why wouldn't you try every paper then if, if you're... The, yeah, yeah. Because if, yeah. if you get a lucky one in, which there are lucky ones, yeah, yeah, yeah. you get that reward. So how, what can we do to make publishing good papers more impactful in the way that it changes a, a film? Yeah, that's also, that's also a very hard decision because we've essentially gone down a pathway that's almost irreversible. I say that with sadness, but it's not irreversible. You know, so how do you judge whether it's a great bit of science? Well, you've got to use expert judgment. But then ex- with expert judgment comes bias and it takes a lot more work. Mm. So, and then no one, you know, then your upper level administrators who are deciding futures of things, it's, it's hard and it's not objective enough. Mm. So impact factors are, and, and citations, etc. they're very crude measures of some sort of object, objectiveness of somebody's right. performance. Some of them are misused quite dramatically. Others are just crude. But I'd like to think that... Um, you know, I know in myself as a practicing scientist, 
you know the people that do really great work that really influences your thinking. And you don't necessarily know who has high citations. And often, mm-hmm. not always do those people have mm-hmm. high citations. So the community will embrace people for the quality of their science rather than the mm-hmm. journals mm-hmm. that they're, they're, they're published in. Because that value judgment, that expert judgment is already made just through the process of listening to talks, reading papers, etc. It's more at the administrative and the rewards level that the problem exists. So the authors from industry you mentioned will mm-hmm. uh, submit their work to SES census. They're not driven by citations, are they? No. So if you think about it, a scientific paper is obviously a report of the science being done, but it's also an advertisement of the science being right. done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And, and then publishing in a good paper is, gives you even, even more credit For the work Correct. So if you're in a startup company, yeah, right. you publish a paper in Nature that's going yeah. to help you enormously get your Series A, B yeah. investment. Right? Yes. Because it's, gone, it's showing the world this is really high quality. So now you're saying publishing papers in scientific peer-reviewed journals also influences uh, startups or the industry commercialization of the products? Yes. Publishing is incredibly right. influential. I cannot imagine any way of having more influence over the field <laughs> than being an editor. Okay, so that brings me to the one of the last questions. So publishing is also often a private activity that advertises or, or showcases often public research. Mm-hmm. And, and that sort of often also establishes some divides or, or con- controversies. Should all the publishing be done by profit, uh, for-profit organizations? So now you're really walking into the open access right. type debate. So, And this is actually a very interesting question and a very difficult one to completely understand the answers to. So, and the, and the open access debate, I, ha- I think, has some strengths and some weaknesses. Mm-hmm. So clearly the business model for a commercial publisher is heavily is is insanely weighted towards the commercial publisher if you think of it just from a financial perspective government pays for the research Mm -hmm. to be done the scientists Mm -hmm. do the research they write the work up for free they submit it to the journal sometimes they pay to have it published in the journal Mm -hmm. and then they pay government then pays to have access to the information Mm -hmm. they funded so it makes no sense from that perspective Uh, if you compare it, say, to a normal magazine yes. where the, where you they pay for the person generating the information, they pay for the editing, they pay for the for the che- fact checking. Remember, we also volunteer to do the fact yes. checking through the yeah. refereeing. It doesn't make sense, but at the same point, it is the only venue, and so that's the open access debate. We pay for all this, therefore everyone should have it. Yes. This this and and I agree with that principle, but there are some flaws mm-hmm. in it that I don't hear being brought into the debate very often. One of them is that the published record, the publications are mm. in fact the scientific record. Mm. And so what the journals are also doing is, right. is ensuring the scientific record is available, unlike that other magazine, you know, where yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Your, 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 your old version of Hello Magazine, you can't get yeah. anymore. Yeah. You can get papers published in 1860s. And so maintaining mm. that scientific mm. record has an expense. Of course, mm. maybe not equal, but a very mm. valuable contribution. 
The other thing that uh, high quality publishers do is they worry about the integrity of that scientific record. Because if a paper is wrong or fraudulent, you can imagine how much, and it's, in, and it's influencing other people, then it's costing an awful lot of money for society. So the open access, you know, the internet-based publishing is that created all these other journals that don't worry about the scientific record. They're just money-making vehicles. And if you think that in that case, it's even better money-making vehicles because they don't have to publish anything. They just mm. put it on mm. a PDF. Mm. So one of the things that the um, publishing houses do is, is protect that scientific record. Mm. And I think that's mm. particularly yeah. true with the society publishers. But also, you know, the big commercial publishers, they are also worrying about the integrity of that scientific record and maintaining it. Then the other aspect of the open access debate is that basically shouldn't everyone have access to it? The implication there is everyone doesn't have access to Mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. And, of course, that's not strictly true because to date university libraries Mm. are open and accessible to people Uh, and anybody can come in and go into our library and read Mm -hmm. a journal. Mm -hmm. It may not be accessible at their desktop, Mm -hmm. but it is accessible to them. And for me... I've not really heard other people talk about this, but I think that's something we want to happen. We want the public who fund the universities Mm -hmm. to come onto the university, see the university, use the university Mm -hmm. resources, because that's in the interest of the university that the public Mm -hmm. knows what we do. And if if you suddenly make everything accessible online, which is fine as well, you take away the impetus of people Mm -hmm. to become part of the public to be involved in the university. And I think, you know, if that's a public space, it's not, it's a public space in my view and it's mm. not being used all the time. Mm. It's really great if other people use it. And actually, I recently went to one university when I was I was just, uh, I had some couple of hours to kill. I thought I'd go to their mm-hmm. library to, mm-hmm. to, to use the resources mm-hmm. and they wouldn't let me in because I wasn't a member of the university. And for me, that's a very sad statement. Right. Right. And it's the same you see that with the with the schools now. Now schools, you know, when I was a kid, you played in the schools on the weekend. Yeah. Now they shut them off yeah. because they think people are going to damage the school. Yeah. I think people are more likely to damage the school because yeah. there's nobody else going through it. Yeah. Yeah. But um, I think that, you know, we're public institutions with publicly funded money. So they're the two mm. aspects that mm. I worry about with the open access debate, maintaining the scientific record and just keeping universities as well as the, the literature open to people. But... Other arguments are very, you know, the, mm. the economic argument is a very sound argument too. Mm-hmm. So I'm very conflicted about it. One last question. Do you have any advice for maybe mid-career researchers to become editor-in-chiefs of a journal? Is that a good thing? Should they try and become editor-in-chief? And what would, what would they need to do? Yeah, so I think um, it was never, never something that I aspired to. It was something that I was asked if I would be interested mm-hmm. in doing and when the idea was suggested to me I thought oh yeah that's really interesting I could really you know I'm, I might like that yeah. and I, I should say I really do like it yeah. so but one I earlier in my career I'd been associate editor of mm-hmm. journals mm-hmm. and I'd only been associate editors of journals that when, when, were, were okay journals mm-hmm. they weren't mm-hmm. really good mm-hmm. journals mm-hmm. And I found it dissatisfying accepting papers that I didn't think were of really high scientific standard. Right. So part of what attracted me to the job that I have is that I was getting to work in what would probably become, I was helping shape mm. a journal that would probably become a more prestige publishing mm. venue. Mm. And so therefore, mm. the editors that work with 
with the journal, the remit I give them is let's publish papers that you would be proud of. Mm. And that's very rewarding to, to, to be helping fairy or mm. sort of being the custodian for mm. a short period of time of some science that is really nice mm. science that I or they would be proud of. I tell, I'm saying all that because in this modern world where there's all these metrics, early to mid-career researchers know that it's important mm. to have Right. X or Y on their thing, on their CV. I would really encourage people to do the things they care right. about and do them well. And I think publishing is something many of us care about. I certainly mm. care about it, and I care that really good stuff is published. So I'm doing something that I'm really passionate about. Mm. When I edited a journal that made me dissatisfied, I didn't enjoy that job. Mm. And so did that help my career? I don't know. But then you start thinking about this. I get asked to be editors of journals all the time, especially the more what we call the predatory journals. If an early to mid-career person took that job on and I see their CV, I think they're doing things for just right. to have the badge. And I so I would recommend people to play the long game, work, work forward towards what are the things they want to do that they think they could make a valuable contribution and publish great science do good refereeing, give good conference talks. Those jobs mm. come to you. you. You shouldn't ask for them is my general feeling. Right. But when they do come to you, think about whether it's going to add value to what you're doing. I like to think of everything as a double win. I'm editing a good journal. I'm influencing a field. I'm also seeing a lot of great science. That's influencing my own scientific thinking. I'm seeing a lot more science, so I'm getting a double win. So to be honest, when I started this conversation with you, I didn't think um, I would see so much passion in, in publishing. And I think I'd be, I'd be convinced that, you know, it is actually quite a good process. I think, look, I think we can all say something's wrong about refereeing and everyone can tell you a crappy referees report. And I can tell you some horror stories yeah. in terms of the publishing process that I've been. I'm going through one at the moment. We had a paper that was accepted nominally in December and we only just got the formal acceptance a week ago. That ten, causes ten a lot of stress, yeah. right? But all the same, the refereeing is, may not be perfect, but it's the best process yeah. we have. And I don't think it's so broke. I also think that we often say, when we say something's wrong with something, we're not always mm. looking back and mm. saying, well, did we write it the best way we could have? Or if the referee misunderstood mm. it, did we have things mm. in the wrong place? Right. So I think it's pretty good, and certainly I think that um, most academics really enjoy having people see their work, reading mm. their work, responding mm. to their work, and this is the, the most permanent way we have of doing mm. that. Good. I think that was quite a positive conversation. I've taken enough of your time. Thank you very much, Justin. I really liked it. Oh, good. Thanks, Rom. I, I, I liked talking about it, to be honest. <laughs> Great. Thanks. Thanks, Justin. All right. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for listening to Research for What? To connect and find more information about this episode, check out researchforwhat.com. Until next week. Research for what? <laughs>